I'm Wendy Mies, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which seeks to bring you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. For this week, in episode 12, Richard and I will be reading Revolution. First on our list is History Will Absolve Me, a 1953 speech given by Fidel Castro in Cuba during Fulgencio Batista's reign prior to the revolution of 1959. Enjoy. I'm here today with Richard for our very first episode of Reading Revolution. Hi, Richard. Hey, Wendy. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about what we're going to be doing today. Uh, I've been looking over the text several times, uh, listening to it get read to me by an online audio or text audio program. And I don't know how many of uh, these that I'm going to say this for, but I highly recommend that people go ahead and engage with this document themselves because it is a very engrossing tale. And uh, I think that they will get a lot from it. So I'm just really excited to talk about it. Awesome. I agree with you. And I'm also very excited. But first, I just want to know, how's everything going? What's up with you? How's Uh, your weekend been? I've I've been enjoying it. It's uh, I've been busy. Uh, I, like most people, you know, the day to day things keep me quite busy. So sometimes it's hard to find time to uh, get the opportunity to engage with stuff like this. But I I was happy to be able to do it with this one. And so this has taken up some of my time. But also I've just been out. And one of the things that I've actually been doing recently is when I interact with people, just in passing by and making small talk, I've tried to find ways to bring up these types of topics in small talk types of ways. And I've actually managed to do it in a couple different instances. Uh, One just recently, I was at the gas station in my dare t-shirt and that sparked a conversation about uh, how propaganda influences people and how sometimes just being honest uh, can be more effective in trying to get people on your side or to support your cause. And so Mm -hmm. That's been, I think, one of the things that I've suggested other people do, and I've really started to try to integrate into my own life, uh, to try to make uh, small revolutionary acts wherever I can find them. You're better than I am, because normally I'm like, I'm a socialist. How are you doing? Um, (laughs) (laughs) At least that's what I did the other day, right? So we ran into someone who lives in our building, and we were talking about politics in Baltimore, which are a hot mess um, all the time, have been for a very long time. And uh, we were talking about the upcoming governor's race. And as some of you may know, Ben Jealous is running for governor of Maryland. And I just said, you know, like, I was just trying to figure out, like, what's going on with Maryland or especially Baltimore, because there's a lot of I know there was deindustrialization and things like that. But there are a lot of other issues that happen in the city that seems like could have been easily taken care of, but weren't. And I'm sitting here wondering, like, why is there so much homelessness, abandoned homes um, and what we could do in terms of, like, getting better politicians in office? 
And I just mentioned like, you know, I'm a socialist. So like my, you know, (laughs) my approach to this is going to be different, but you know, I think sometimes that, um, that approach doesn't work, uh, depending on the people (laughs) you're talking to. Right. Um, and I just, I kind of put it out there because I don't, I think it's important to like, not be ashamed about your political leanings, but at the same time, that can obviously be alienating for some people. But I usually just make the assumption that like, if you're young, if you're like, my close to my age, even though I'm getting older, that you'll be less triggered in a negative way by the idea of left politics, but you never know. And so I think that um, your approach is a little bit smoother than mine, but I'm working on it. I try to, <laughs> I enact change through teaching and, and things like the podcast, but I think your your method is a little bit more uh, efficient sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I tried uh, more your style a little bit before and uh, he was talking with his young brother and uh, he mentioned that he was emulating Vince McMahon <laughs> as, as like his model capitalist. And I, uh, I realized that there was a larger distance than I had originally anticipated. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of methods to get people on your side and things like that, uh, today, just to give a back, little bit of background, we're actually talking about History Will Absolve Me by Fidel Castro. So that's the first reading that we chose for um, Reading Revolution. And we actually chose this for a variety of reasons, one of them being that I had engaged the text in a course that I was teaching for um, this past semester. And it's something that some of the students who actually read it really enjoyed. And I felt like it would be a good start because it covers so many topics, even though it's not super long of a piece. It's around, I don't know, like 50 to 70 pages, depending on the size of the font. But it's actually a four hour speech if you were to read it out. And we'll get into the background a bit of that in a minute. But Fido talks a lot about the importance of reaching out to everyday people and the ways that you can address their needs. And so I think it's fitting that we're opening with this, um, especially considering that A lot of us are trying to grapple with this idea of fixing problems, but how to actually get people on board with the process of fixing those problems. So I think it's a good thing to start out with. If any of our listeners are in a place like me that have come to the realization anywhere over the last couple to last, you know, even decade as far, but are struggling a bit to get a, a firm grasp and understanding of what politics, what political thought out there is there already that links up or connects with the intuitive kind of political positions that a lot of people are arriving at now, like uh, whether it's the the kids from Florida and their ideas about gun control or whether it's about Medicare for all or it's uh, about, you know, some sort of basic income, any of those types of things. It's important for us to kind of understand what thoughts, what ideas, what what writings are already out there. And uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to read every primary document and be thoroughly engaged in every historical text, but engaging with them in some ways is important. And part of what we want to do here with Reading Revolution is give people that are either don't have the capabilities, uh, the literacy, the, the vocabulary, the access, the the time, whatever it is, whatever restrictions that it is that that's preventing you from being able to engage in this. We want to try to lower some of those barriers so that more people can engage in what I find and I'm sure Wendy finds as well as important ideas and thoughts about concepts and ideology of the left. That's exactly right. And I think that there's, you know, as as I always say, as someone who's like pursuing a PhD, it's really fascinating because I look around and I see all these barriers that are put up by people who, and even sometimes unintentionally, I think, 
by people who are in academia or who are in, who are writers or journalists or whatever. They hold these events during a time when people are still working or they have events and they don't have any childcare or they have these reading groups that they assume that the average person has two hours just to like spend out of their day to go and sit with a bunch of strangers who may also in a space that like could also be alienating just by virtue of where it is or the demographic or whatever. And they expect people to kind of just like be comfortable with that or able to participate in those things. And I think sometimes people take for granted the responsibilities and schedules and um, just obligations that people have. So it's not so much that people aren't interested in being engaged, but sometimes there are just limitations on the basis of environment, time, ability, that I hope that things like what I'm doing with Left Pocket Project and this particular um, series of Reading Revolution can at least help break down in the future. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about this first episode. And uh, why don't we get started by talking a bit about the background of history will absolve me. Uh, absolutely. I think that's an excellent point. And I know you had uh, uncovered some excellent research in that area. Yeah. Um, and it's not, it's not of my own doing, right? Um, so this is, this is all from a course that I took on Cuba. And I admitted earlier today when I spoke to you that it's been a while since I've cracked a lot of these books um, because my work, my research isn't on Cuba, but I have to obviously understand what's going on in Cuba historically. But, you know, there are all these little details that you forget over time. Um, so I went and I actually looked up uh, some work that I had read before. And there's a book by the name of Cuba, A Short History. And the editor is Leslie Bethel. I'll leave all of this in the show notes for anyone who wants to actually um, read it if they have a chance. But the, the, the book itself is broken up into time periods because oftentimes when we talk about Cuba in the United States, when we hear Cuban revolution, we think about what Fidel Castro and his um, troops did in 1959, right? Like overthrowing the Batista regime mm-hmm. um, and launching the country into more or less you know, a socialist revolution. However, there are all these other revolutions that are happening in Cuba prior to that. The first primary one being uh, what's going on in the 1800s when Cuba actually takes up arms, including the enslaved, right? So uh, there's a really great book by a historian named Ada Ferrer, and she talks about the, the process of, you know, people freeing their slaves to fight in this war against the Spanish. And unfortunately, right after that, uh, you know, slavery is technically over, they have freedom, but it's very short lived because then the U.S. comes in uh, and what we now call the Spanish-American War takes things over, installs a bunch of pu- puppet governments um, and really puts the U.S. Or the, puts Cuba in a position where it's dependent economically on the U.S. for a lot of things. So this book does a good job of, of sort of laying out that history. And in this particular chapter, which is chapter three, it's called Cuba, 1930 to 1959. It's actually written by another historian by the name of Luis Perez. And he himself is a uh, sort of left-leaning author. He's from Cuba, if I'm not mistaken. So it's kind of nice to have this local history of his own that he's um, including in the work. Anyway, he mentions um, on the first page of this chapter, he says, quote, armed intervention led to military occupation. This is, he's talking about the end of the war with Spain and when the U.S. came in. At the end of which, in May of 1902, the U.S. had effectively reduced Cuban independence to a mere formality. The Platt Amendment denied the New Republic treaty-making authority, established limits on the national debt, and sanctioned North American intervention for the maintenance of a government adequate for the protection of life, property, and individual liberty. The Reciprocity Treaty not only bound Cuba's principal export commodity, sugar, to a single market, the United States, 
but also open key sectors of the Cuban economy. So he's talking about agriculture, transportation, all these other things to foreign, mainly U.S. control. So he then goes on to talking about the economic aspect of it, which is pretty crazy. So he says, like, you know, the U.S., um, there were all these other countries that were invested in Cuba after the war. And, you know, they had a few millions here, a few millions there, the French, the British, et cetera. But that the U.S. had invested $200 million, which, again, at the early 1900s, a ton of money in the U.S. So or into the U.S. had invested $200 million into Cuba. So obviously that meant that Cuba was in, almost entirely dependent on the U.S. economy to keep itself afloat. And I can go in a little bit uh, more in a second, but just kind of thinking about that, like, what are your what are your thoughts about about that situation? Like, what does it mean to be economically dependent on another country right after you gain freedom? Well, I could see how there could be some how, how one could fall into that in uh, almost a proactive way by buying into America, U.S. propaganda about what America represents, what it is and the the fierce freedom of capitalism and like all of those kind of concepts and ideas how that could appeal to a a, a nation newly uh, proclaimed or newly claimed uh, by a group of people that have adapted their way of life to a, a certain type of subservience that they've they've decided that they're going to end but haven't necessarily figured out what they're going to replace it with the United States especially uh, under the guys of the propaganda could fit that that hole pretty well so i could see how there would be a desire to do that but then as well and uh, it's mentioned in in fidel's speech about the ownership of the assets uh, whether it's the land or some of uh, the industry assets and so on and so forth and the lack of industrialization and what that meant mm -hmm. and and the raw material aspect of that cuba provided rather than the the building blocks of a, an industrialized civilization. I think all of those played a, a huge role in leaving the Cuban people ready for another revolution so quickly. I mean, it's interesting too because what ends up happening is you know you're talking a bit about like leaving things as they were to set up uh, the population for being ripe for revolution, right? And what's mm -hmm. fascinating is like reading this this uh, section by Professor Perez. What ends up happening is there's all these people who are really fighting what's ha what's going on economically in Cuba. So there are a lot of um, radical intellectuals, young people, you know, people who are being educated under the system and recognizing the economic disparities. And they're saying like, hey, this is not right. And this is actually like early, in the early 1920s and 30s, this is when you start to see the growth of the Communist Party um, and a lot of little left-wing factions here and there made up of students, uh, young people, young professionals. But what's fascinating too is that in the process, of course, I guess not fascinating, but predictable. Um, in the process of these movements getting their wings, you start to see more and more U.S. crackdowns and political interventions, or as we like to say in real terms, coups, right? At the moment that they start electing people who are more left-leaning, the U.S. steps in. They actually have an ambassador who starts training military operatives, one of whom is Batista, who becomes the Fulgencio Batista, the man that Fidel Castro and his men overthrow. But uh, he starts propping up these leaders and supporting these leaders um, that really don't have the interests of the Cuban people at heart. And Cuba goes through a variety of presidents, multiple between the period of the end of the war in the 1800s and the beginning of the, uh, the, the Cuban revolution in the 50s. So by the time 
Fidel makes this speech in 1953, they've gone through a handful of presidents and leaders in a very short period of time. And he's recognizing that Batista, at this time, actually, in 1953, it's right after Batista actually engaged in a coup to overthrow, of course, it was U.S. back, uh, to overthrow a democratically elected president who was of uh, an opposition party. So there's a lot of upheaval, and that's what he's responding to. But what's sad is that while it does seem like it would be the perfect time to overthrow the government and that the people would be backing him, and this is something that we can talk about a little bit later because he does mention it, Fidel Castro mentions it, Professor Perez argues that because of all the economic or the political upheaval, people were growing indifferent. So they they were like, there's nothing really that we can do, right? Um, the U.S. is going to step in and overthrow anyone that we like. And these people who have money and landed interest types are going to basically disrupt any sort of movements that we have. So on the one hand, it does seem like it would be the perfect time to overthrow the government um, and that people would be behind him. But at the same time, the history shows that some people had grown really despondent and kind of like indifferent to what happened because they felt like they couldn't do anything, you know. Given the chance of winning the fight, it, not only do you have the despair of just falling back into the same situation, but also that, you know, that it's not going to just getting sick of the, all the violence or all of the, the negative consequences that come with replacing political leadership. That's right. That's exactly right. And so that's why in some time, you know, some ways you can look at what Fidel Castro is doing in the early 50s as, I mean, a lot of people on the one hand refer to it as the beginning of what later becomes the Cuban revolution, right? They see it as this first step uh, because to, to give a little bit more background, what they end up doing is he and a very small group of men, actually, it's not like a huge group of men, but it's a very small group of men and women actually come together and um, go into the mountains and stage a revolt, like an armed revolt against the Cuban army. And the, the on the one hand, they're lucky because, as he notes in the speech, the Cuban army is not well trained or prepared uh, for this sort of thing. And he even says, like, he sort of references uh Antonio Maceo, who was one of the generals during the war against the Spanish, uh, he says, you know, like they're not even, they weren't even fit to carry the same stuff that like the donkeys would have carried during the war against the Spanish. You know, like they were just not prepared for us. We were better trained, even though we weren't necessarily military officials. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But like, it's fascinating that in, in doing this, he, I don't know, like, I, I, I think that that sort of the lack of popular support at least large scale popular support may have been one of the reasons why they ultimately failed, at least in this stage. Yeah. And, and we'll get into it more as we get into the text itself, but it, it turns out to be a remarkably successful failure. The, the <laughs> attack on the barracks itself. The, That's right. Some people do refer to the Moncada attack and Fidel getting ousted as a failed revolution attempt. But uh, it, I think I, I, from my limited perspective, I, I see it more as the the beginning of the revolution and that the failure was almost necessary in that had he mentions in the in the text itself that basically he could have made a call to call to arms to the people, but that he wanted to spare the bloodshed. And so, like, I think had that happened, had that then that there was more of an all out conflict that the revolution could have turned out very differently. Absolutely. And he could have himself been killed. Right. So yeah. we may have never gotten this speech in the first place. So who knows if we could like go back into in a time machine and switch things around how things would have ended up. Speaking of the speech, let's get to that. 
just the background, the basic background of the speech itself, it's happening in 1953 um, after this attempt uh, to overthrow the government and to rebel against the, again, Fulgencio Batista regime that had taken over in a coup by overthrowing the previously elected president. And at this point, he is, he has been imprisoned and uh, several of the people who fought with him in this process has been imprisoned. And um, he's in the process of being sentenced, basically. He says, you know, like he's, he's sentenced, I believe, to 15 years. Um, and so this is his response to the sentencing. Like the, the speech itself, as I mentioned before, depending on the font, is around 50 to 75 pages and technically would be four hours if you were to read it aloud. And so, Richard, you and I were talking about this and we were like, there's no way in hell he was able to give a four hour speech. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> like it, at least not as it, this isn't a, a court transcript that we're reading essentially that's right <laughs> yeah was, according was to the record like he there was no there was no like typed transcription of what he what he actually said to the judge at the time this is like he his rewriting of what he said so i would assume that he added some things here and there maybe changed some stuff around but the general message of of the revolution itself is still embedded in this text and was likely in the speech too and what's interesting too about this is that this speech is actually, it's been translated in so many languages. Like if you go online, you can find it obviously in the original Spanish, but also in Portuguese, English, French, so many languages. So it's really seen, as you mentioned, like an important, as an important part of the revolution itself. It's like the, the prequel, if you will, uh, mm -hmm. to a really interesting uh, sequence of events that happened later on and that lead the Cuban people to freedom. But one thing I want to say before we get into the text as well is the fact that like, while you and I have our own feelings about the text and our own feelings about the revolution and about Fidel Castro and about communism in Cuba, fill in the blank. What's important for listeners to keep in mind is that we're not so concerned with the leaders and the figures, but we're concerned about the message that they convey in this text, right? Mm -hmm. The messages, the ideas, the the conceptualizations of, of the will of the people and what that means and, and those types of things are our primary focus, of course, I'm sure in, in the course of some of the documents, we'll come across people that we're personal, that are personally uh, valued by us in one way or the other. And that may bleed through into some of our conversation. But again, for me, I like, and this is a learning experience. I'm learning about a lot of this stuff as opposed to, you know, merely just kind of sharing what I already know with the audience. And so in this learning process, I may shift my perceptions on things and stuff like that. So rather than be followed around on that, I'd rather focus on the ideas and, and the, the core stuff that is going to be valuable and important to understanding just society and humans in general. And then uh, the, uh, the applicability or the, the non-applicability of some of the concepts to our modern times. So getting into the text, he starts with, basically a background of what's been going on for the past, he says, 76 days. So he says, for the past 76 days, he's been locked away in solitary confinement, held totally and absolutely incomunicado in violation of every human and legal right. And he makes all of these appeals to the constitution that's been established, you know, following the wars and all of this. Um, and he kind of says, like, to the judge, you know, you're a judge and you didn't even let someone represent me. You didn't let the bar association that had defended me really make their case. You didn't do the things that you were supposed to do as someone in the legal profession and as someone as who's much like me, you know, being in the position of Fidel Castro, who's like me, someone who's trained in the law, right? He's basically kind of trying to to appeal to 
basically like show himself as like we're on the same we're on equal we're on the equal footing right like both you and i have been trained in the law both you and i understand the constitution so why are you violating it in the interests of these like authoritarian government officials yeah it feels like a a combination of an appeal to their integrity and a bit of a shaming in that basically i i know it's scary to stand up to the people that are encouraging you to ignore the law and the basic foundations of what you spent your life practicing uh but i'm here with the bravery to say what i'm saying uh you should be up on that bench with that same type of bravery and like are essentially trying to elicit or pull that out of them make them think that of themselves right and what's interesting too is that he often appeals to kind of like the importance of the cuban identity right and the idea of cuban freedom again he makes all these references to the war against spain and he's like look we're a free country like we are a free people we fought for our freedom and this is who we are as cubans he says for example when he's talking about some of the people who helped him in the process of of this attempt at moncada he says yes we are set out to fight for cuba's freedom and we are not ashamed of having done so he's talking about the people who were um witnesses in this process right in the trial itself he's saying like we're cubans right we understand the importance of cuban freedom we understand the necessity to fight so why are you shaming us aren't you one of our fellow countrymen he makes all these appeals to sort of a national identity too yeah and and he goes on at length and and does quite a good job i think of trying to really hit some foundational parts of both the law and and the concept of justice in such a way that if there was any sort of obligation towards justice that it would seem that would be effective in in hitting on it in the the legal mind or the the judge or the other people involved although he's uh less optimistic about the prosecutor i think uh-huh. sounds like he's confident the prosecutor is thoroughly in the pocket of batista he yeah. also in these appeals to like the revolutionary war that happened in the 1800s he talks a lot too about the specific leaders. He, he, you know, puts their names out. So for anyone who kind of has a general idea of Cuban history, even if you don't, Marti, uh, Jose Marti is a super important person in uh, this this period of time in history in Cuba, and he con- he makes constant references to Marti because Marti is really seen as like one of the main forefathers of Cuban liberation from Spain. And so again, he's kind of calling upon these people and saying, look, like, don't you respect their legacy? Like you're free right now because of their work. And he says that it's insane that like you have prevented people who are being imprisoned at the moment, not only who were involved in this revolutionary act in the fifties, but anyone before that from having access to the work of Marti. So he says, for example, they prevented me from receiving books of Marti. It seems the prison censorship considered them too subversive or is it because i said marty was the inspirer of 26th of july so basically he's saying that like are you are you questioning marty's value as a forefather too in the process of keeping me from reading him or are you saying that the act of liberation that he encouraged and fulfilled is too revolutionary for us to consider in the present it's an interesting challenge and uh, i've seen it reflected in a few different arguments and it it feels something similar and i mean even in the text he references several of our founding fathers when he's referring to the concept of the government being dependent on the consent of the will of the or the consent and will of the governed and i think that that's an important aspect to uh, at what you're just talking about and i i i i wonder how 
how effective he thought he was being in that with those people in that moment versus uh, as he alludes to at, at the end uh, sorry to jump ahead but uh about the retelling and the that they will be judged not just in they're not just casting judgment on him but that they'll be judged in history and so i wonder how much of that was an honest appeal to the people in the room and how much was uh, an appeal towards uh, the audience that would be reviewing it in history right yeah and it does make you wonder because i mean does he really believe that the people who have been put into office quite literally by this rather dictatorial regime are going to be are going to care and that's why we were kind of joking and saying like there's no way this is a four-hour speech because we don't think any judge who was like on the side of the batista regime would be like yes please deliver a four-hour speech before the court we're so interested in hearing your opinion right humiliating me and everyone in this court for all of posterity (laughs) yeah and I mean, does the question is like how I think it raises a larger question about thinking about protests and things like that. Like sometimes we see we see this attempt to kind of appeal to the people who are oppressing us. Right. Like you should make things comfortable for them. You should put things on their terms. And I don't know if that always works. Um, and we've seen through history that most of the time what works a little bit better is actually fighting uh, the people who are oppressing us instead of trying to make them feel comfortable. I don't know. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, and I, I alluded to this, uh, mentioned this in conversations between us before, but essentially that, you know, people didn't stop dropping N-bombs because uh, black people politely explained to them why it was inappropriate to refer to them. Is What happened was people would do it and they would get a violent response and the rest of society would just kind of turn around and look the other way. That mm-hmm. that That's how that problem was resolved. It wasn't a legal thing. It wasn't a... It wasn't a law. It wasn't, a, you know, a polite discussion between people. It was, you know, people got people viewed that term as a violent act against their personhood and responded in kind. And people were like, well, it's not worth it to ex- make that expression unless I'm surrounded by other like minded individuals. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I think that the, a similar principle can apply. And I'm reminded of Huey Newton. He says, I don't think that the people fighting their oppressors should be limited to what is outlined as legal by said oppressors. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> I'm also of a mind that I, I can't get on board with the idea that oppression is a result of the oppressed people, not properly according their oppressors, mm-hmm. <laughs> like that, that the responsibility lie on the oppressed is, I mean, that's the reality of the situation in that, the 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 oppressors are un, under no personal obligation that they view to recognize the shortcomings of their behavior but in in a moral and in an ethical sense if we were to apply the same kinds of standards that they apply towards those that are in the oppressed categories you know self-reliance bootstrapping and all of that it it could not be more their responsibility to end the oppression of the oppressed people as they are in complete and total control of it Right. I mean, we've heard so many people in even in the U.S. alone, like make these appeals to exactly what you were saying. Huey Newton is saying. Right. So people like Audre Lorde, Malcolm X. And even though he isn't remembered um, as such as saying these things, but like Martin Luther King is another one. I mean, MLK Mm -hmm. talks a lot about the need for us to really stop worrying so much about what people think of us and focus on the importance of our independence and our, our liberation. And I think that, you know, there's been a whitewash version of him that's become more dominant. Um, in our popular discourse, but he, among many others, have been 
saying these things for a while. And we're saying these things contemporaneously to people like Castro, who's Castro is sort of playing with both sides. Right. Because on the Mm -hmm. one hand in the speech, he's like, you know, hey, lawyer and hey, judge, you guys are like me and you're, you know, from these middle to upper class backgrounds and you respect the freedom of this country and you respect all these European thinkers because he, he makes a lot of references towards the end to people like Montesquieu and the like uh, Greek philosophers and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also am asking you to like recognize the rights of the people and to recognize this as a step towards their liberation and to recognize also that what you're doing is wrong. At one point he says to them, quote, I warn you, I am just beginning. <laughs> like, damn. <laughs> um, I warn you, I'm just beginning. If there is in your hearts a vestige of love for your country, love for humanity, love for justice, listen carefully. I know that I will be silenced for many years. I know that the regime will try to suppress the truth by all possible means. I know that there will be a conspiracy to bury me in oblivion, but my voice will not be stifled. It will rise from my breast even when I feel most alone and my heart will give it all the fire that callous cowards deny it. Like, Okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, exactly. There's some uh, a few fire points like that that are just like wow. Like the how how it panned out is a separate story, but the intensity of that moment, as described, is is uh, gives me chills. Yeah, for sure. And I'm I mean I'm I'm sure I didn't say it as nicely as he did, and with <laughs> as much fire as he did, I did my best uh, <laughs> Castro impression, but. <laughs> But it's definitely something that, you know, you read it and you're like, wow, like he's he's at the point right now where he's being sentenced for technically 26 years, something like that. Something way beyond the normal amount of time, he says, that's even provided to or provided for like basic criminals for robbing things and like killing people and stuff. They get he's saying they get less time than me as someone who's just like asking for freedom, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. But it is it is pretty amazing that like he's he's thinking and saying these things at a time when, yeah, it's a big risk for him and a lot of the people that um, went into this rebellion with him. And there's yeah. no guarantee he even makes it to the prison as there's been attempts on his life already. And like, that's right <laughs> at this point and, and attempts to try to adjudicate him incapable of defending himself and so on and so forth. So like he, the, the idea that he even le- makes it out of the courtroom isn't really guaranteed. Like, mm-hmm. it, the, that level of commitment to the cause and seeing righteousness and freedom in in dying in pursuit of it is something that uh is a type of uh i i guess honor and uh i want to put it into chauvinism but not so much with the negative categories but it seems like a part an old part of society that has somewhat fallen by the wayside in most parts of popular society Hmm. like that kind of concept that you would have that integrity towards your cause that where sacrificing your life in pursuit of it wouldn't be a foolish thing to do. Hmm. That's interesting that you say that. I mean, do you feel that people, I mean, you said like nowadays you see less of that. Can you go a little bit further into that? What do you mean when you say you see less of this sort of, um, I don't know, like self-sacrifice in the, in the process of protest or I don't know, like any sort of subversion against the government? It mostly feels performative, you know, mm. it, it feels like the, the a lot of the sacrifices are performative in that you see people of privilege uh, getting arrested in a way that's not going to significantly impact any of their future prospects and encouraging that kind of behavior among people who are going to have to suffer much more dramatic uh, consequences as a result of that and may, you know, lose opportunities for employment and so on and so forth. 
in a way whereas the the people leading them there are essentially benefiting from it and gaining clout gaining uh, uh respectable like uh respect gaining uh sometimes monetary not directly for the cause but then they're invited onto shows and they get to plug their book or whatever it may be so if they're I don't want to say as far as they're all grifting, but that the that there's a, a profit incentive for some of these people to encourage people to do these types of acts without any sort of real recognition or expectation of the sacrifices they're making. And so that you don't see a parallel on their side so that if some people have to pay a $50 fine in order to get out and you're paying a $50 fine too, if you're worth, you know, 50 million and the people, the other people paying it are worth, you know, negative 5,000, it might be more some it might it might reflect better the concept of sacrifice is if uh, you made a reflective uh, sacrifice for them towards uh, you know getting back their freedom by posting bonds and so on and so forth those and and, and you see some of that and so i don't want to lump everybody together and say that, that it doesn't exist and that it's not happening but that it's not I don't think it's lauded in the same way and 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 promoted in the same way as as it once was I think the the commercialism of in the consumerism particularly in the United States uh that has kind of trained us to uh respond more towards ad agency type friendly presentations of good deeds mm-hmm. leads us to 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 see one thing somebody doing something positive like let's say uh I think it was a chance the rapper that donated a million dollars to Chicago schools and that that can be celebrated but the underlying issue of what's going on in those schools and like how that million dollars isn't necessarily helping the problem but making it worse isn't isn't both understood by the people that are uh doing it or the people that are supporting it or any of those aspects and and so i without getting too far afield i i just see some some of the a better example, I guess, might be I just recently saw a Starbucks thing about, oh, Starbucks said that they were going to make recyclable cups and, and basically stop making so much garbage. It's time that we hold Starbucks accountable. And that dynamic of, oh, this corporation promised us they were going to be better and they didn't. Now we have to hold them accountable by reducing their profits by by, you know, protesting and divesting from their interest. And uh, while I understand the the practical application of that and why we we do that uh, in the speech to get back to that a bit, Fidel mentions uh, there's a quote and essentially it says that we can't rely. Uh, I'll pull the quote real quick uh, that the nation's future, the solutions to its problems cannot continue to depend on the selfish in- interests of a dozen big businessmen, nor on the cold calculations of profit that so long as we're trapped in the dynamic of, whoa, we need Starbucks to be better if we want like, in order for our society to be better and their motive is profit. So long as we're trapped in that, we're playing their game. The idea of self-sacrifice and all those types of things are are wrapped up in that same type of dynamic where we sacrifice. So, you know, I'm not going to purchase this type of product anymore. That's my sacrifice. And, and we don't really quite understand where the sacrifices would be more effective or what they really mean in the grand scheme of things, I guess. I think also with that, like not only the issue of commercialization or like having to make appeals to big business to, I mean, try to enact any sort of change. There's certainly also the aspect of, I think, negativity, even within the movements themselves. Um, So there's often this idea that like, for example, the U.S. military industrial complex is so strong that there's no way we can overthrow it. 
there's no way we can like change things because they'll just, you know, bomb us or nuke us or whatever. And there's, there's no way to enact change outside of the system. Protest is useless. Or, you know, I, I hear a lot of negativity um, on this end sometimes. And I think that at the same time, there are people who have literally risked their lives and I think mm-hmm. had some success in at least putting a message out. So if you look at movements that occurred in Ferguson and Baltimore, they're very clear examples of people literally being, um, you know, they have guns pointed at their heads and all these images that we see in video and things like that. It, and they're already reacting to a kind of occupying army of the police in their neighborhood. So it's not like they're they're just coming out of nowhere and saying, oh, this, this is making us really sad. Like we should, you know, <laughs> rebel for the sake of getting popularity or putting out a hashtag. A lot of the people who started this this revolution, I would I would call it a revolution of its own, um, were people from the community, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, it, it blew up because of the attention that it garnered from people beyond these communities. But at the end of the day, the people in the community were being oppressed and responded. And I think that this can't be uh, discounted. But I think sometimes we have this ne- sort of negative response to what is rightfully, you know, rebellion towards oppression. One that came to my mind is the water protectors, uh, mm-hmm. were another great example of, of that. And so just because I was being a bit down, I want to make sure that, that I do see examples of real sacrifice and of putting themselves on the line for the greater good and willing to sacrifice anything and everything in order to accomplish it. And that's the kind of spirit that it takes in order to be able to put out of mind the naysayers that say that, you know, oh, the, the protests are useless, the, the government will squash you no matter what, and all those types of things. It takes that kind of spirit, that kind of determination, that will. And seeing it displayed there is it definitely helped inspire me to get to where we are today. But continue your point. Mm-hmm. No, I was just going to pull another quote from uh, Castro. So he says at one point, um, after he talks about the soldiers and the role of the military, which we can go into a bit later, because he does he does sort of impart that mm-hmm. there's even a revolutionary aspect to some of the soldiers who are involved, which is interesting. He kind of he 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 does this thing where he sort of forgives the ills of the soldiers because he recognizes they too are part of a an exploitive system. Um, but again, we can talk about that in a minute because I think it's super relevant to the U.S. and the again military industrial complex and who gets wrapped up and caught up in this process and why. But he goes on with regard to the people and says that the government and the military, quote, have tried to establish the myth that modern arms render the people helpless in overthrowing tyrants. Military parades and the pompous display of machines of war are used to perpetuate the myth and to create a complex of absolute impotence of the people. In other words, y'all can't do anything, right? Like there's no point in trying to rebel. He says, continuing, but no weaponry, no violence can vanquish the people once they are determined to win back their rights. Both past and present are full of examples. The most recent is a revolt in Bolivia where miners with dynamite sticks smashed and defeated regular army regiments. Fortunately, we Cubans need not look for examples abroad. No example is as inspiring as that of our own land. During the war of 1895, there were nearly half a million armed Spanish soldiers in Cuba, many more than the dictator counts upon today to hold back a population five times greater. The arms of the Spaniards were incomparably both more up-to-date and more powerful than those of our Mambises. Often, the Spaniards were equipped with field artillery and the infantry used breech loaders similar to those still in use by the infantry today. Cubans were usually armed with no more than their machetes, for their cartridge belts were almost always empty. So basically, he's like, half the time, they didn't even have weapons, and they still took the risk to defend their rights and their freedom. So I think that, you know, even then, at this point, he's recognizing that, like, Throughout Cuban history, 
there have been naysayers and there have been people saying, you know, there's no way we can fight the army. There's no way we can fight the Spanish. There's no, you know, fill in the blank. There's always a no way to do something. And people have found a way when they become desperate enough to really recognize that they have to do something. Otherwise, you know, it's, it's in for them. It doesn't, at this point, there's nothing to lose. Right. And that's a story I suspect we'll find across many of the writings that we go through and throughout history of revolutions of a great number of people that either out of fear or out of their own uh, assessment of the situation arrive at the conclusion that it, resistance is futile mm-hmm. <laughs> to steal a quote from the board, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> essentially that, you know, that, that all you're going to do is cause more pain and more suffering uh, in retribution for your attempt at trying to rise up. And that's going to make things worse for everybody. And that is a powerful argument. Uh, among a scared populace. And so overcoming that uh, takes examples and demonstrations of great bravery uh, and uh, integrity. And bravery doesn't mean not being scared. It, it means recognizing it and moving forward. And so and like knowing that your life is on the line, that the, the people that you're speaking from may strike you at any moment, like in the middle of what you're saying, <laughs> for all that matter. And we'll do whatever it takes in order to cover it up because they've already shown you that they they'll they'll even do a terrible job if that's what it takes to cover it up. If so much as they deem it necessary in the pursuit of their goals. And so that type of that type of spirit is is uh, I don't think can be expected of everyone. But I think those that want to uh, be at the front have to demonstrate if they want people to follow them. So let's talk a little bit about what he actually lays out as the plan going forward, right? So he says, Mm -hmm. this particular act may not have worked out as we planned, but there are certain things that we have in mind um, that we want to do as revolutionary acts, as he calls them, um, to better sustain the population. So one thing just before we get into that, actually, I wanted to just lay out the people that he's speaking to in this speech and the people that he considers part of the masses. Um, Mm -hmm. So this is something that we start to see very similarly to the U.S. even in the present. Um, he starts to say things like, "There are six hundred thousand Cubans without work. There are five hundred thousand farm laborers who live in miserable shacks, who work, you know, multiple months of the year, but they're still starving. There are poor children. There are people whose retirement has been taken away, and other benefits, their healthcare benefits, their salaries, who are majorly in debt." He talks also about people who are you know, even young professionals, lawyers, veterinarians, teachers who see the doors, quote, closed to them, uh, where there are no ears to hear the clamor or supplication. And he then at the end of this paragraph says, to these people whose desperate roads through life have been paved with the bricks of betrayal and false promises, we are not going to say we will give you blank, but rather here it is now fight for it with everything you have so that liberty and happiness may be yours. And so with that, he goes into what he calls the five revolutionary laws. So let's talk a little bit about what those laws are and um, where you see some maybe contemporary parallels uh, for us to consider in our own lives. Do you want to start yeah. with the first one? Yeah, sure. I just, uh, on I wanted to piggyback a bit on the quote that you left before and mention one of the other quotes that stood out to me in line with that was, he says, quote, the first condition of sincerity and good faith in any endeavor is to do precisely what nobody else ever does. That is to speak with absolute clarity without fear. 
the demagogues and professional politicians who manage to perform the miracle of being right about everything and pleasing everyone are necessarily deceiving everyone about everything. Mm. The revolutionaries must proclaim their ideas courageously and define their principles and express their intentions so that no one is deceived. And so I think that something along these lines, just to, before, to preface the revolutionary laws, is these are things that people have to have in mind. If if there was a revolution tomorrow and you don't have five revolutionary laws that you would enact or however many and you haven't even considered them, then we're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're in trouble <laughs> like because the, the ramifications and the details of how these all actually would actually pan out on uh, an implication is a whole nother story if you don't even have them to begin with. And we have Medicare for all. And, you know, let's not leave people on the streets and empty houses. But but that's basically where I think most of the left has agreed upon and anything beyond that doesn't have a consensus. But the first revolutionary law that uh, he, he mentioned was that we would return or quote, the first revolutionary law would have returned the power to the people and proclaimed the 1940 Constitution, the supreme law of the state until such a time as the people should decide to modify or change it. And I think uh, it's also kind of important to mention that part, a large part of his argument is based around uh, the constitution uh, of Cuba and that the Batista regime is unconstitutional. The second revolutionary law, he says, would, to give, would be to give non-mortgageable and non-transferable ownership of the land to all tenant and subtenant farmers, lessees, sharecroppers, and squatters who hold parcels of um, five caballerias of land or less and the state would indemnify the former owners on the basis of the rental which they would have received for their parcels over a period of 10 years. So, okay, that's a mouthful, right? Um, but he's basically saying here that if you till the land and if you work the land, then you should have the benefits of the work, the labor that you put into it, right? You shouldn't be in great debt for the land that you're working on. Basically, the, the fruits of labor should be equally distributed and shared and owned by the people who are actually doing the work. It is important to note that it's, it's, he's not advocating for a collective ownership per se, or the abolishment of private property, but to uh, of a redistribution of it as it stands. And this plays into essentially, as we talked about earlier in the show, that the U.S. interest held a large portion ownership interest of a lot of the most valuable Cuban land. Uh, the sugar plantations and so and uh, some of the banana fields, so on and so forth, uh, and the other farming and limited industrial equipment was often owned, not by the people that were working it and turning it, turning profit out of it, but by moneyed interests in the United States. Right. And that's also what the third and fourth revolutionary law actually get at, uh, because he says, for example, the third revolutionary law would have granted workers and employees the right to share 30% of the profits of the large industrial, mercantile, and mining enterprises, including sugar mills. Uh, and then number four, he says that the fourth revolutionary law would have granted all sugar planters the right to share 55% of sugar production and a, a minimum quota of 40,000 arrobas uh, for all small tenant farmers who have been established for three years or more. So again, this is all about making sure that the profits aren't just going out of the country or to mass, you know, like super wealthy landowners, but that the people who are working the land actually have access to the profits and the fruits of their actual labor. 
finally, why don't you handle this fifth yeah. revolution, fifth and final revolutionary law? <laughs> yeah, in the fifth revolutionary law, the quote uh, would have ordered the confiscation of all holdings and ill-gotten gains of those who had committed frauds during previous regimes, as well as the holdings and ill-gotten gains of all their legates and heirs. Uh, to implement this, special courts with full powers would gain access to all records of all corporations registered or operating in this country. And there's more there, but that's the the gist of it there. Yeah. I guess the other part on uh, there that I'll go ahead and mention is half the property recovered would be used to subsidize the retirement funds for workers, and the other half would be used for hospitals, asylums, and charitable organizations. So once confiscated, it would be used for the public good, essentially, is the the idea behind it. And so uh, from my understanding of those five revolutionary laws is uh, Castro at this point in 53 was arguing for uh, a redistributive uh, redistributing the assets and then some limitations to keep the, the benefits within the Cuban, with the Cuban people rather than uh, money interests outside of the country. So as revolutionary as all of this was it wasn't a full-blown communist abolish abolition of you know capitalism and all the stuff that it may have been painted as uh in the u.s even to this day even mm -hmm. uh, looking back at 53 as opposed to the revolution that happened in 59 and the actions afterwards yeah i mean it's basic to me at least maybe because i'm already on the left but i really <laughs> see it as like common sense i mean he says at one point quote we export sugar to import candy we export hides to import shoes and we export iron to import plows. I mean, he's absolutely right. Like these people are putting in all the work and they're growing and, and, you know, harvesting the goods, but then the actual final product they have to import. They don't have the industry and they're not allowed to have, I mean, under this regime, they're not allowed to build the industry at home to be self-sufficient, you know? And I see these sorts of things still going on in so many countries. So like, for example, just in my experiences in Brazil, Brazil has a huge dairy um, industry, a huge uh, meat and um, hide, like, you know, uh, cow skin leather industry. And yet when you're there, I mean, you can find like the cheap versions of things. But if you want to get really high end quality shoes, for example, that are leather, most of them are imports from other countries, even though they're technically made in Brazil and with Brazilian leather, like it doesn't make any sense. And you're like, wait a second, why are these people being like doing the actual labor, but then having to pay double the price? even though the stuff is coming from their land. Like it just, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, it, it, from a, yeah. From a, just a very, uh, just observe, observing the situation. Why would we let somebody else make the profit off of this part of it when we're going to need the end product anyway? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's like, usually you're like it, the reason why the United States does it like with lumber and sending lumber to China and then getting uh, wood products back is because we want to outsource the externalities, the environmental pollution, the, those other aspects. But that wasn't what was even transpiring in, in the Cuban situation. It, it, it's not as if the, the reason that the, in, the industry wasn't there was to preserve the natural beauty of the island, but as more of an exploitative way in order to extract more of the profits away from the people that were gathering the raw goods. While we're on the international part, there's mm -hmm. something else I really think is super interesting and important in this text that he talks about. And... This is sort of right after he's delivered the five revolutionary laws. And he notes, uh, quote, furthermore, it was declared that the Cuban policy in the Americas should be or would be one of close solidarity with the democratic peoples of this continent. And that all those politically persecuted by bloody tyrannies oppressing our sister nations would find generous asylum, brotherhood and bread in the land of Marti, 
not the persecution, hunger, and treason they find today. Cuba should be the bulwark of liberty and not a shameful link to the chain of despotism. And I'm like, this is so amazing because he's really, he's starting to kind of declare what we saw Haiti actually do right after the Haitian Revolution. Um, Just for those who maybe don't know, after the Haitian Revolution, Haiti basically became a free space for Black people. So as much as we talk about Canada or the North being sort of a space of liberty for slaves in the U.S., uh, Haiti also presented itself as a place where Black people could all be free. Um, And so I think in a lot of ways, the sort of legacy that he's continuing here, um, citing Marti as a as a revolutionary hero in Cuba, he's basically saying, if you yourself are somewhere being oppressed, come to Cuba and we will treat you as an equal. We will help you. We'll see you as a sister brother nation, you know? And I think that that kind of mentality is something that we unfortunately fail to see in the U.S. because oftentimes it's not a brotherly or sisterly familial relationship. It's one of paternalism and exploitation, right? of these mm-hmm. other nations. It's that we don't set up ourselves as a place where people can come, even though we say this about people can come here for refuge, but what we're doing is we're destroying their homeland and then saying, oh yeah, by the way, you can, if you can get here, right. Um, then maybe and make you it can through the screening accepted. process. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, like, if you survive, first of all, and then yeah. if you make it through all this like stringent um, immigration process, and if you do this and if you do that, and if you jump through all these hoops, you can get here, but we're still going to cre- treat you like crap. And we're still going to like, you know, put you in really dangerous economic situations and physical, social situations. And we're still going to, you know what I mean? It's like, and we no don't matter hear what hurdles you, you overcome and wherever you get, if you step too far out of line, we will not hesitate to remind you your place. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> As Michael Steele was recently reminded. Oh, yeah, Michael Steele. That <laughs> um, <laughs> just flopped in my mind. I just couldn't help but mention it. But yeah, yeah but people just... are always reminded of their place. I mean, I think that's a really good point. Even though Michael Steele maybe is not the person that I would choose as a... <laughs> But I mean, I understand what you're saying, right? And I think that's often the case of like people who try to, again, like flirt with power, right? Who try Mm. to appeal to the oppressor. That shit doesn't work. Like at the end of the day, it doesn't work. Um, You're always going to be reminded and you're always going to be put in your place. And I think that one of the really empowering aspects of this speech is this internationalism. And this is early on, like this is well before Cuba was doing things like going to African nations and defending certain populations against uh, imperial forces, right? Um, there was, there's a lot going on in these early stages of what he's saying that I think really are, you know, like aspects of of governance that I would hope one day the U.S. would actually take on and, and use in earnest, you know? Yeah, and I guess a little bit to that and his appeals to the concept of justice, one of the things that stuck out to me was he mentioned, uh, he, there's a quote that says, quote, when you try a defendant for robbery, robbery, honorable judges, do you ask him how long he has been unemployed? Do you ask him how many children he has, which days of the week he ate and which he didn't? Do you investigate his social context at all? You just send him to jail without further thought. But those who burn warehouses and stores to collect insurance do not go to jail, even though a few human uh, beings may have gone up in the flames. They're insured. They got lawyers. And he goes on to say that they're insured. They got lawyers, and essentially that money people, money people with money are above the law. Hmm. And uh, <laughs> I think that's something that a lot of Americans can relate to. <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah, thing. I immediately thought of like the failure to prosecute people who you know created the housing crisis. And, and <laughs> under the the most extreme democratic control that we've seen, I think uh, most of us have seen anyway in our political lives, and so. If uh, peak Democrat control gets us that as a result, 
uh, I think it, it leads people to wonder if there's any answers to be found within that party at all. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's depressing, but it's definitely something worth considering, right? Like, is there, is there freedom? I think this again goes back to these appeals to power, right? Like, is there, is there, um, I don't know, is there a possibility of enacting change from within or appealing to the parties that, and I, I use plural here, multiple parties that have hurt people in the process of governance, right? I think, I don't know. It, it again brings up this argument of like the inside outside strategy, right? But mm -hmm. I don't know which one. I don't know if if the inside strategy is working so well for us. <sighs> you know, it, it it looks like uh, as as suspected. A lot of people think suspected that the party is better at changing people than people are at changing the party. Yeah. I think that's what we're seeing. <laughs> I think that's what we're seeing manifest in a lot of ways. And but I do think that one thing is relevant too that he says that's on that note too is the fact that like some people are indifferent to suffering that's not extreme in mm -hmm. the way that we're used to. So right before the quotation that you actually used, which I really love, it's one of my favorites of the whole piece. Um, he also says at one point that um, only death can liberate one from such misery. In this, he's talking about uh, people who are starving to death, right? Um, in this respect, however, the state is most helpful in providing an early death for its people. 90% of the, the children in the countryside are consumed by parasites, which filter through bare feet on the ground that they walk on. Society is moved to compassion when it hears of the kidnapping or murder of one child, but it is indifferent to the mass murder of so many thousands of children who die every year from a lack of facilities, agonizing with pain. And I think that, you know, this, and he also talks a lot about like teachers who have to pay for school materials with their own salary. I mean, so many things are still relevant today, even though this is written in the fifties, right? And in a completely different country. We, we got a little bit more money than they have. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. It's like, we're literally, we are in the seat of the empire that's oppressing Cuban people at the time that he's writing this. And we're still seeing, even at the time that he's writing it, there are people who are, you know, living in economic misery in the United States, even as, as early as the 1950s and clearly before that as well. If you mm -hmm. look at certain populations who are disproportionately hurt by the economic policies of the U.S., um, you definitely see that. And I think that, as he notes, right, it makes much more news when you hear about people being killed or, you know, like people suffering a, a drastic, like dramatic death. But there's less, there's not a blip on the radar when you realize that like people are starving, people can't make their house payments, they don't have a roof over their heads. And it's a slow death that that I think we're much less willing to as a society to grapple with and really uh, work toward changing because it's not right in our faces. You know, it's not something that all of us have to deal with and that recognize is immediate, you know, an immediate danger to our livelihood. And there's always the, there's a psychological and without like pretending I'm, I'm a PhD in psychology, I'll, I'll just kind of touch on it a bit in that our brains are wired in such a way that we're able that we're able to put away other people's suffering and that the further away they get, the easier it is, because uh, just in from a survival aspect, we'd be in constant tears if we actually thought about all of the suffering going around on around the world all the time. Mm -hmm. like, there's just so much and it's it, it's so much more horrifying and terrible than even the worst you know lifetime story that you watched or whatever or whatever thing that you may have been in, engaged with that really triggered an emotional response the stuff that's actually happening around the world every day a lot of it in our name is so atrocious and so devastating that it's it, it i mean it's really it, it's hard like i mean just looking at pictures of kids in yemen like just seeing the suffering of the children mm -hmm. it is 
is devastating. And so much so that we've pretty much given our social media the okay to censor it from our, our viewing so that we don't have to see it. It's, right. it's easier to just pretend like it's not happening because it's not happening in the United States or as far as we see, and it's not our families, it's not our friends. And so it, it it's psychologically, it's easier for us to put it out of mind, but it's, uh, there's another great quote in here. I don't know if I have it, but essentially it, it says that uh, great men or good men follow a path of duty rather than advantage. Mm-hmm. And that it, it we get an advantage by not confronting those horrifying images and not seeing the atrocities performed in our name and not engaging and confronting the politicians making those decisions with our blessings or our, our, condo- or our <laughs> passive consent. Right. Uh, and so like when we do that, it's our duty to confront those things and that that's a harder path, but that if we watch throughout history, that that's where the, the real justice lies is following your path of duty rather than advantage. Because if you follow for advantage, it will eventually collapse on yourself. And one of those duties too, is just the simple fact of recognizing that there are resources here and elsewhere that could be used to help the people, but that those with power choose not to. So it's a choice. We're making choices. Yes, exactly. The choice isn't critical. We're presented it as if it's, it's just the way things are and uh, it's how it has to be. And there's no alternative. And in so many cases, that's just simply not true. Right. (laughs) Like sometimes we don't have great choices to choose from, but we're not always even picking the better of the two that we have. Mm-hmm. And he lays, I mean, Castro himself in the speech lays out the numerous resources that Cuba has, natural resources that could be used to feed people, that could be used to house people, et cetera, and that just are being um, you know, squandered and shipped elsewhere. But that it's really, as, as we were saying, it's a choice, right? It's a choice. It's an active choice to engage in oppression. And it's an unnecessary choice, right? It's only one that enriches a small group of people, but that, you know, you could use a lot fewer resources to help more people. But again, the fact that he's engaging these questions at this time and in a small, much smaller country than the United States really puts things in perspective. And I think we have this sort of we have this strange mentality of like for our comfort, we have to, um, you know, submit to the, the suffering of others. People beyond the borders mm-hmm. of the United States have to suffer for us to be safe. Or people beyond the United States have to be exploited for us to have what we want. And that's not true. Like, it's just <laughs> not true. It's literally like on its face a lie. And I think it's, but it's it's something that people have come to believe over time. And I hear this, these sorts of things over and over. Like, people are dying for our freedoms. People are, ki- are killing others for our freedoms. And it's like, well, are we free? Like, am I free because people in Yemen are dying? Am I free because like Iraqis were murdered en masse for a war that had nothing to do with, you know what I mean? Like, I don't it know. It allows you to choose from 10 different gas stations, 20 different lines. Right. <laughs> that, those yeah. are the freedoms you have. <laughs> yeah, the freedom is like the freedom to consume. I mean, that's that's like the libertarian idea, right? Yeah, like the freedom of choice to buy shit. Like, yeah, and try not to get caught up in the fact that all those 10 choices are really actually only owned by two or three companies. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah like the the sort of fiction of choice is something that that's very real for us and you know again different circumstances but i think his his message and the speech still apply here in the sense that like it's not that in some of the circumstances he lays out like uh unemployment or uh the the 
house or people that are houseless and so on and so forth. Some of those conditions are worse in the United States today than they are as described in in this speech in Cuba. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, particularly on the unemployment side, if you actually, I don't know what what statistic he's using for unemployment, but he he essentially it looks like he's just using gross population statistics. In which case, the United States unemployment is is much much higher than the the kind of propagandized number that they give us of like four percent. Mm-hmm. In reality, almost half of the population of the United States doesn't work. Right. Like, yeah. It's like people who just aren't even making the stats, you know? Yeah. There's, like, depending on how you count it, you can get, you can arrive at all different types of numbers, but it boils down to like, in, you know, they use working age. So they cut people off of the, off the rolls at 65, even though lots of people over 65 are having to work in order to make ends meet. And like, so they're boosting up the employment numbers rather than being seen as the drag as a drag. And so there's so much manipulation going on in the statistics as presented to us that mm-hmm. it's, it, I could easily see how uh, among that and other aspects that he describes that the situation in the United States is worse and other places where as it's described in Cuba is worse than we might see it today in the United States. Right, especially considering again that we have so much economic power. Like it's a, it's yeah. even more of a crime against the population that we're not, you know, like feeding people and we're not clothing people and there's not a roof over some people's heads. Like there's just no excuse at all, like none, zero in this case. As we sort of come toward to, to the close of the mm-hmm. piece, I wanted to ask you a bit about your thoughts of some aspects of <clears throat> excuse me, some aspects of it. Um some things that I I kind of gave a little side eye too that I think are worth discussing. And also if you had some side eye moments in the speech, because we've mainly been positive about it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But there were some, some things that I said, well, I don't know, this is worth a little deeper discussion. So let's go into that. And then um, we can also talk a little bit more towards the end about how readers themselves can get involved with reading along with us and sending us their questions and comments for us to talk about in the next episode. Sounds great. Something that comes up that I was taken aback by is, first of all, his defense of soldiers. And we should probably talk about why that why he mm-hmm. defends the soldiers. Um, but that's that was something that I was kind of surprised by um, and was wondering if he felt sincerely or if he's, again, sort of making an appeal to power to gain sympathy towards his cause. And then secondly, I felt this massive absence of a discussion of slavery. Um, and of course, he's, you know, he talks a lot about uh, exploitation by landowners and things like that, which I think, you know, is, is a reference to the extenuation, extenuating circumstances that are very comparable to slavery by a lot of uh, Cuban peasants that continue from the period of slavery into the present, um, or at least the present for him at the time. But I also, I was just surprised that like he, he sort of leans on a lot of historical moments in Cuban history, like the oppression of indigenous groups and the exploitation of of workers and the um, the violence that's committed by the Spanish and then later the U.S. Americans uh, against Cubans, but he doesn't. It's odd that he just completely oversteps the issue of slavery. He doesn't list it in um, his sort of you know like moment where he's talking about the oppression that the Cubans have faced. And I, I found myself wondering about that. I, I was just looking over to to kind of refresh my memory, and I noticed uh, I did just a document search of where I found slave referenced, and the I found five references, and virtually I think four out of five at least were referencing the soldiers or the Cuban mm-hmm. people in that mm-hmm. like saying that people were being that the Cuban people were being treated like slaves. So it's like clearly slave like the concept of slavery was in his mind as he wrote this but the actual practice of slavery as opposed to the comparing of such conditions to slavery didn't make it in which i think is an important point to 
to notice and especially considering how late in the in the eight, the 19th century slavery went in Cuba it was like this I believe the second to last last one to abolish slavery in the Americas was Brazil but Cuba was a close second so Mm-hmm. It's kind so, of a glaring absence. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely it was relevant and topical, and its absence is uh, a bit of an indictment of a, at least a, a blind spot of some sort, it, it, at minimum of history of people looking at it in the future. But because uh, we could give the the credence of you know the idea that he's speaking to a specific audience, and that mm-hmm. this is that this particular part was to appeal towards the westernized and the white supremacy aspect of that that was still influential throughout cuba regardless of the revolutionary ideas that were circulating Mm -hmm. and certainly the judge in this Mm -hmm. trial right is not a black guy right the the judge judge (laughs) is pretty confident to say that (laughs) yeah i do too i would bet my right and left arm uh that the judge is a man of spanish descent most likely um most likely white etc so I, i think that there's there's again that that little tick that he has throughout the speech to kind of play up his um, I don't know like the status and to kind of appeal to the power in that way, which yeah yeah. I don't and know. you mentioned also with the soldiers, there's a quote that I pulled that is relevant to that. Uh, it says, uh, "quote What a great sense of honor these modest army technicians and professionals had, who did not distort the facts before the court." Speaking of the the soldiers of mm-hmm. the military that testified in court, uh, but gave their reports adhering to the strictest truth. These surely are soldiers who honor their uniforms. These surely are men. Neither a real soldier nor a true man can degrade his code of honor with lies and crime. And I think this also kind of touches a little bit on the 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 sex aspect of the of the discussion. Well, there is a part that I did find really emotionally invoking uh, that he mentioned about women upon thinking about the context, as you've mentioned in the side eye aspect, I realize <laughs> it, it, it in, in trying to uh, lift the women up, he's almost degrading them in that, you know, uh, as in that quote, you know, the soul, only men or soldiers are referred to as soldiers and can be soldiers, even though he has women fighting next to him. Right. Yeah. yeah there's so- one part too, where he, there is a part where he mentions that, um, there were nurses, for example, who would help, they would help like cleaning the guns and giving the guns to the soldiers, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, I think that women take, women play an important role here, but it certainly is an auxiliary role. Um, and there have been historians like Michelle Chase, who've talked about the sort of feminist angles of a lot of Cuban women soldiers who went on to fight for the revolutionary, the revolution in the 50s and 60s. Um, you know, she wrote a whole book on on sort of that secondary fight not only for freedom against uh, oppression by the United States and by the Batista regime, but also uh, this question of patriarchy within Cuba and women's place in, in subverting some of that. And I think, you know, comparatively speaking, obviously Cuba is way ahead um, and eventually really came around in terms of women's position as leaders, um, in term, especially with regard to the armed forces and medicine, education, so many other um, so many aspects of Cuban society. So this isn't a knock on on what Cuba eventually came around to do. But I certainly agree with you that there are some lines where you feel like women have a backseat to the events, even though they're also uh, engaged in this process. Yeah, the the one that comes to my mind, and uh, just because of the the emotion evoked, I want to make sure I use the names. But uh, with Melba Hernandez and uh, Haiti Santa Maria were held. 
uh, this is a quote, uh, addressing the ladder and showing her the eye. They said, this eye belonged to your brother. If you will not tell us what he refused to say, we will tear out the other. She, who loved her valiant brother above all things, replied full of dignity. If you tore out an eye and he did not speak, much less will I. And then later they came back and burned their arms with lit cigarettes until at last filled with spite. They told the young Haiti Santa Maria, you no longer have a fiance because we have killed him too. But still imperturbable, she answered, he is not dead because to die for one's country is to live forever. Never had the heroism and dignity of Cuban womenhood reached such heights. And while I found it a very emotionally invoking uh, moment, and I, I think, uh, I mean, having a sister or a fiance with uh, such determination and grit would be an honor. Uh, I don't think that that was necessarily uh, the, I think it detracted from some of the other aspects that the women were contributing towards, because if they were taking prisoners, they were likely armed and taking gunfire just as alongside with the the men. Yeah, that's a good point. And it also sort of puts the women in this position of like a relational aspect to men, right? Mm -hmm. So like, they're important because they're the sisters or wives of these men, as opposed to like individuals themselves, right? Mm -hmm. um, which we often see when we're talking about things like, how could you say this to someone? Don't you have a mother? Don't you have a sister, right? It's not just mm -hmm. like women as individuals, but women in regard to their relationship to men, um, which, you know, take that for what you will. <laughs> well, and yeah. I just want to mention quickly that, uh, uh, you know, uh, my my tag on Twitter is learning liberation and this reading revolution. And so like I'm learning. And so sometimes I may say or think things that uh, don't necessarily uh, align with my uh, more deeply held ideas. And it's something, you know, I'm constantly daily working on decolonizing my mind, erasing Western propaganda uh, and all sorts of aspects of unlearning things that I've grown up with. Uh, I mentioned in the, the uh, left pocket podcast that we did some of my background about, you know, how, how I grew up and how uh, the world I'm in now in of leftist politics and uh, what many would deem the far left is uh, dramatically different than uh, my upbringing. And so I'm, I'm learning. And so be patient with me and I'll, I'll be patient with you. I'm really glad that people have listened to us for so, so much so far, but uh, I, uh, I'll hand it back to you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I agree. I think we're all in that process, right? And especially as people who grew up in the United States, um, you know, I don't know about you, but I had to unlearn a ton of stuff just in terms of like my own positioning in relation to the world, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I'm still learning, you know, I don't, I don't see this as a finished process at all. Um, but I think it's something that's really important to keep in mind. And I appreciate you, you know, mentioning that you're mentioning that. And I think it's something we're, we're both doing, we're all doing. And reading these sorts of texts is part of that process. The last thing I wanted to point out, just with regard to the the soldiers, and well, not so much the soldiers, but the um, the idea of revolution itself. One of the things that he emphasizes over and over throughout the text as well is um, the importance of having a just revolution, right? Um, mm. Not not just being violent for violence' sake, but also recognizing the, the sort of relevance of of revolution in the face of oppression. And he he often focuses on, you know, the the, even the soldiers who are fighting for the Batista government are being exploited. They are being paid little, you know, they're not being paid the value of their work. Um, they too are suffering. They too are going homes to hungry families and things, going home to hungry families and things like that. And I just wondered, you know, um, I have my own thoughts, but I, I wonder about your thoughts as well with regard to recognizing 
the people who are involved in war or who are involved in um, either on the one hand oppression or on the other hand revolution, kind of like how do we how do we position them within this this larger context, right? Can soldiers who fight for the regime that's oppressive be because this is something that's come up quite a bit in recent weeks or in recent well forever? Um, it's an old question. But like, how what do we make of like is there is there a place in a revolution for people who are on the one hand engaging in acts of oppression? Like if they if they is there do these people come around? Can they unlearn? Can they unlearn their their position um, th- in relation to the oppressed? I think it's an interesting question that has been tackled in a variety of ways. Uh, one more recent example and uh, Walking Dead spoiler alert. <laughs> in case you're not caught up on the series for anyone uh but essentially that you know they take some prisoners of another group and there's uh, you know an internal debate among their group about what to do with the prisoners and and whether the they're redeemable people or the the only responsible choice is to eliminate them and uh as far as with the oppressors aspect and going back to the speech itself one thing that comes to my mind is uh, at one point I re- I remember he cites and only briefly, but that they essentially had uh, inside men, people in the in the army that were on their side. That mm-hmm. and without them, the the moderate success of the Moncada attack or the attack on the Moncada barracks would have been even less successful. And so, I think I will find that in successful uh, using that term loosely, uh, revolutionary attempts that there will be inside pe- people within the oppressive structure uh, on the side of the revolutionaries that leads to a better success than those that are launched strictly from the outside. Mm-hmm. And so with that, I-, I think some sort of association is necessary. Recognizing their humanity is, I think, also important. Uh, I'm I'm one, I, I kind of like listen to the Dalai Lama on that people do what they think is going to make them happy. And it's like the suffering that they inflict on other people that people don't intentionally inflict harm and suffering on other people for the sake of inflicting harm and suffering, but that they think in their mind, they've come to a conclusion that it it's beneficial for everybody to, for the situation. <laughs> and so while that may be delusional, devastatingly wrong and all those types of things, it leads me to the conclusion that they're not necessarily evil and that we can't explain it as in like they're possessed by an evil spirit or a devil or anything type of like that, but that they've been so misguided that they're making such terrible choices. And that maybe the only, the only solution is to cease their ability to make any choices, but that, it's in our interest to try and find alternative avenues as we would expect them to do with us, even under their despotic construction of a regime. So you think there's still, there's still some redeeming to be done. Yeah, but but it's, it's not simple. And it's something that I'm specifically looking for in these Mm -hmm. types of uh, texts is information and knowledge and understanding around that topic, because I see, you know, the different things. And, you know, and like I said, I grew up in a different community, essentially, than the one I'm a part of now. So a lot of the times, when people are saying things, they're talking about people I know and care about, and who have helped support me throughout my life. Like, so it's not as easy for me to just cast them aside as it is for with republicans to to say mean things about liberals and make it seem as though they're all terrible and so on and so forth or, or that liberals are on the left do about people on the right is because mm-hmm. i i i i 
shared their life experiences. I know things about how they got to where they're at that isn't necessarily displayed in the way that they convey their messages or the way that it's interpreted by the people that hear them. And so there's a personal investment for me to find redemption for people that may not be politically aligned with myself uh, and may even be very far opposed and would, I could even find myself on the wrong side of a gun in the wrong circumstances <laughs> in a revolution. Like these may be the people that are pointing it at me, but uh, I have a personal vested interest in hoping that I can find some sort of salvation, some sort of redemption for them either in the text or in my uh, own constructions as a result of being informed by them. Well, at least we have an optimist on board. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's all for show. Yeah. <laughs> I am also an optimist, but I think my optimism is, is waning these days. Um, but uh, so speaking of waning and things coming to a close, I wanted to see, first of all, if you had any additional quotes or thoughts that you wanted to add from the text. I know I have one. Um, it's kind of a mic drop moment. So I'll let you go first and uh, then we'll end the discussion of history will absolve me. All right. Uh, just, just your mic drop isn't doesn't start with "Let me tell you a story," does it? No, it doesn't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, the the quote uh, thing that I that really stuck out to me, and uh, I think is going to ring in the ears of people that hear it, uh, was this one: "Is quote, let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, there was a republic. It had its constitution, its laws, its freedom, a president, a Congress, and courts of law." Everyone could assemble, associate, speak, and write with complete freedom. The people were not satisfied with the government officials at the time, but they had the power to elect new officials, and only a few days remained before they would do so. Public opinion was respected and heeded, and all problems of common interest were freely discussed. There were political parties, radio and television debates, and forums and public meetings. The whole nation pulsated with enthusiasm. This people had suffered greatly, and although it was unhappy, it longed to be happy and had a right to be happy. It had been deceived many times and looked upon the past with real horror. This country innocently believed that such a past could not return. The people were proud of their love of freedom, and they carried their heads high in the conviction that liberty would be respected as a sacred right. They felt confident that no one would dare commit the crime of violating their democratic institutions. They wanted a change for the better and aspired to progress, and they saw all this at hand, and all their hope was in the future. And the next part of that goes on to say how Batista came in and dashed those dreams and hopes and all those things. But that that spirit of what people think that they're experiencing and the 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 far offness of that ever going away can be snatched from you in a moment. Uh And uh, I think it's prudent that we keep an eye and maintain that in our mind. I would agree with that for sure. I think that, you know, you've made several pop culture references in this discussion, and I think it's time for me to make my pop culture (laughs) reference. Um, When I read the very end of this piece, which is for me the mic drop moment, I was thinking totally of like if if there were real housewives of Cuba and Castro were one of the real housewives, this would be his little (laughs) entry. So when the for those who watch Real Housewives, I have to watch silly shows like that because I spend most of my day reading really depressing things about like colonialism and stuff. Um, so I have a dirty secret of uh, a guilty pleasure of watching really bad reality TV sometimes. Um, okay, often. And um, <laughs> I can't I either confirm the nor deny these rumors. But go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, with Real Housewives, they have this thing in the intro where they have these like little lines where they say like, you know, I don't know. I can't think of a good example right now, even though I watch them. But they have a little line to kind of explain who they are in like 10 seconds or less. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you when you think about uh, the way that they act as well, there's a lot of petty going on on these shows and like people saying things that are like biting, but that stay with you. And you're like, well, she's actually right, even though the way she went about it may not have been the best. But she's right about what she's saying. Like I'm on team Kenya or team Mimi or whatever. Right. Um, so in this case, I'm totally team, team Fidel for what he says at the very end of the speech. And I'll read it. He gives a, you know, background on like basically how the courts messed up and how the law is doing things wrong. And he literally says, I pity your honor. And I regret the unprecedented shame that will fall upon the judicial power. I know that imprisonment will be harder for me than it has ever been for anyone, filled with cowardly threats and hideous cruelty. But I do not fear prison, as I do not fear the fury of a miserable tyrant who took the lives of 70 of my comrades. Condemn me. It doesn't matter. History will absolve me. Mic drop. Um, (laughs) So basically, he's like, I don't give I don't give an F. You know, he's like, you can do whatever you want with me. But I know that I'm right. And I know that you're wrong. And I know that in the end, you know, the way things are going to play out, you guys are going to be on the wrong side of history. And what you're doing is is completely unfair, incorrect, and, and quite frankly, you know, criminal towards your own people. So I think, again, if if Fidel were a real housewife um, in his tracksuit, for sure, he would be in a tracksuit, 100 <laughs> no percent of a lure tracksuit because he likes tra- he liked tracksuits towards the end of his life. Uh, but, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, it's one of those moments where you read it and you can totally you could apply it to, you know, could make a joke out of it like I am, which is just to to add a little humor into all of this. But I really do think that it's one of those things that stands out as important. And if you're going to plan on doing anything uh, revolutionary, wherever you fit in in that, you have to have resolve, you know, and you have to have confidence in your movement and you have to be, you have to fully embrace the fact that what you're doing is right and for the right reasons. And I think that he really sums it up with that, those lines. So. Yeah, Yeah, it's important to find the core truth to you and and fight from that, because while you'll learn all sorts of things through the show, through reading, through all sorts of different types of uh, information, uh, it's that it's that core, the real instinctual desire to care for your fellow man or woman kind that should drive this stuff. Uh, I'm reminded of Hampton and that mm-hmm. he talks about revolution and that people can get caught up in revolution for a lot of different reasons. Maybe, maybe they're just poor and they want something. And that when, if you don't clearly identify what those core principles are that you're fighting for, that it's easy to get wrapped up in the next thing. And his, as he puts it before, you know, it, we'll have Negro capitalists. And before you know it, we'll have Negro imperialists, which mm-hmm. some may say, Barack Obama personified. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm like, we're already there. Uh, so yeah. Fred Hampton is foreseeing, <laughs> Uh, definitely where we are now, but I think that's a great line to close on. And um, speaking of education, education for anyone who is listening to this. And if you did get a chance to read and you want us to answer specific questions, or if you didn't get a chance to read, uh, but you have some questions about what we said here or anything that you'd like to us for us to go in a little bit greater in depth on um, you can feel free to, Uh, Use the hashtag reading revolution and um, send us tweets on the left pocket project or left POC on Twitter. Um, You can do the same by going to curious cat 
slash left POC um, and asking us questions. And the, we, the questions we'll read on air in the next episode, which will be a month from now. The other thing, Richard, can you give us a preview of what we'll be talking about for the next episode of Reading Revolution? In the next episode of Reading Revolution, I think where we wanted to go was talking about the role that propaganda plays in revolution. And uh, I think we'll both be finding possibly an example of uh, pro-revolution propaganda and then also the type of propaganda that stymies and, and smothers revolution and, and the type of roles that it plays. And we'll be discussing that in more length or at more length uh, next show. And I'm really looking forward to it. And I quickly just want to say thank you for all the people that have listened to the show and uh, are continuing to engage either in the left pocket project or this or uh, any of the variety of uh, leftist media that's out there. There's a lot out there. And for those that chose this particular show, uh, I can only say thank you so much. And I can only hope that this show and in the future can meet whatever expectations that you set of us and that we do the best job that we can to help share uh, our process and what we're doing here that's helping us understand revolution and where we see our future heading. So thank you so much for all those that uh, sharing, liking, uh, you know, just listening or engaging in any way. Thank you so much. And thank you, Richard. That was beautiful. Wow. You're, uh, <laughs> it's like your Academy Award acceptance speech. I love it. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Richard. Thank you for anyone who's listening. Thanks for, you know, again, hooking us or being together with us for this long duration of a discussion, but I think it's really worth it. And I hope you do too. So thanks again. And everyone. And thank you for listening to episode 12 of the Left Pocket Project podcast. And of course, the first technical episode of Reading Revolution. If you would like to get involved by sending your questions, comments, or thoughts, about this episode or any future episodes based on the readings that we lay out, feel free to hit us up on Curious Cat by typing in left POC. Again, you can send us your questions, comments, additional thoughts, things that you'd like for us to add in our discussion. Next month, as we noted, we'll be talking about propaganda and its uses on both the revolutionary side and also on the counter-revolutionary side. So be sure to send us questions once we announce the readings that we'll be going through. And of course, if you have the time, read along with us as well. Finally, if you'd like to show your support for the Left Pocket Project, you can go on Patreon, and that's patreon.com slash leftpoc, to donate a dollar or more per month to keep the show afloat. You can also, of course, help us by sharing, liking, reviewing, commenting, adding any of your thoughts on social media, online, and of course, wherever you can find the podcast. You can find The Left Pocket Project on Twitter, Facebook, Media Revolt, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spreaker, so many sources. So just be sure to type in Left POC and you shouldn't have any problem finding the project. Thanks so much again for listening and have a good one. Thank you.